and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Good morning, Bent Tree Church. It's good to see you guys out there and you girls out there. And if you didn't know, fall has officially begun because I put flannel on. So I am glad to be wearing flannel this morning on this beautiful Colorado fall day. And and I'll just add my voice to uh, Brother Ed that, uh, boy, uh, let's be praying for Israel, be praying for that whole area over there, the brothers and sisters uh, uh, on both sides of that thing. But especially uh, if you are not a believer, man, time's short. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, uh, Jesus is coming back soon. Uh, and so I can't, uh, can't wait for that, but uh, things are going to get rough. Things going to get rough. So, well, good morning. So I'm glad to be with you this morning here. And uh, just looking at all the stuff that we have to, uh, to cover, you go, Paul, why are we covering one verse? And I go, well, and, and we covered it last week. And I go, there's just so much here. Who brought their Bibles? Who brought their Bibles? Hold those things up and just keep them up for a minute. Hold those things up. Hold them. Let's get them up. Okay. Now look around. See all those Bibles in the air. This is the word of God right there. You can put them down. Uh, It's the truth. This is the sword of the spirit. Knowing this thing, knowing the Bible, hiding it away in our hearts, knowing it, understanding it, what the spirit is saying. This is what will change you. And hear me, this is what will change the world. You can put those uh, things in your lap, get them open. Uh, For you guys that brought your study Bible, man, you probably got some muscles now holding those things up. So uh, we'll worship uh, more in our singing, but we've worshiped, we've prayed, we're hearing the word of God read aloud, and we've been repenting of our sins. If you haven't, repent of your sins now. Uh, Let's worship through the preaching of God's word, shall we? Let's open to John 8, verse 12. I encourage you to take notes. There's going to be a lot of notes. By the way, uh, you want to know the easy stuff um, or easy way to learn stuff and to stay engaged, especially if you go, hey, Paul, man, church has just always been boring to me. Uh, Listen, here's how to engage. Write down the points that I'll put up on the screen and things that just catch your ear in a way that if you had to stand up here right after I'm done, and you had to give the same message that you could. That's the secret of taking notes. Uh, That's just how you do it. It will keep you engaged, and it will open up some deeper stuff to you. So as I was preparing for this Sunday in my studies, I'd planned to go from verse 12 through verse 18, maybe verse 20. Uh, But the more I studied, the more I prayed about it, I just thought there's just... There's just so much here in verse 12 that we haven't gotten to. And I don't want us to miss any of the gold here. So we're going to dig down deep. Um, We went pretty deep last week, but let's go deeper, shall we? Uh, And and why do we go deep? To grow deep. And to grow deep in our spiritual maturity, that just isn't a saying. It's so we can grow deep in our relationship with God. And it's in that relationship with God that we begin to see spiritual fruit in our lives, and it shows up in the way that we love each other, right? That we love the world. It will show up in our relationships with the people that God places in our lives uh, to serve the church, uh, to the people in the church, and in the world where we live, where we do life. So to be the hands, to be the feet of Jesus. Well, we covered some of these verses last week uh, as we did, uh, but hang with me on this. I promise this is going to be powerful stuff. Uh, God is going to unlock some stuff for us. I will, I'll give you some of the uh, some great insight. I feel like the Holy Spirit has given me uh, to live our lives as followers of Christ. Let's remember the setting. It's the last night of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, the crowds are there. Um, the common Jewish folk, the Jewish leadership is there. They're wanting to kill Jesus. So we read in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now we're going to be taking this verse apart and examining it 
part by part. It's good. It's just so rich with meaning. Uh, this is the second of the I am statements, if you'll remember, that Jesus refers to himself in John. The first one was chapter 6, verse 35. We spent a couple of weeks uh, on chapter 6. I think we spent like 10 weeks on chapter 6. So uh, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now remember those two words, I am, make up the covenant name of God. We'll explore that more as we go forward in the book. But the phrase I am is that name that God tells Moses. He says, tell the Hebrew people to call me I am. I am that I am. So as Jesus is referring to himself then, here by that name, I am, then he adds on that little phrase, I am the light of the world. Altogether, we read, I am the light of the world. And, and when he says, I am the light of the world, Jesus is referring to an aspect of his divinity, of what being the great I am means. So I, we could read it like this. Here's our first note. I am the one true God, therefore the source of the light in the world. I am the one true God, therefore the source of the light of the world. Now this will make sense hopefully as we move forward a little more. I am the one true God, therefore the source of light in the world. We'll get more into this in just a couple of mon- minutes, but just, just see what the Hebrew people are really hearing or listen with the same ears that they would hear it. Last week when we looked at this, we saw the connection Jesus made between this statement about being the light of the world to what's happening that last night of the Feast of Booths as the giant menorahs are lit and they, they dance with those torches. Uh, but today I want us to think about this statement differently. I want us to come at it from a different approach because this is some deep water uh, here as far as meaning. You know what I mean by deep water? It's a way of thinking about meaning that it's not just a simple definition. To be very honest, in my opinion, this verse right here is some of the deepest water, deepest meaning in all the Bible. And with the meaning that deep, we'll not make it to the bottom of this. Uh, And in fact, from my study of Scripture and many others, the truth that Jesus declares about himself here, it's in this meaning, we'll not even get to it, look at me, in all of eternity, it's that deep. Because God is, he's infinite and we're finite. But the beautiful thing about heaven is he will just be pouring into us in heaven without the weight of sin on our lives or even the temptation to sin. So it's so full of meaning because as Jesus is speaking here, he is beginning to reveal who he is as the son of God. But, But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Even if this is infinite, uh, infinite, infinitely, infinity deep, infinitely deep into the, this meaning here of who Jesus is as the son of God. There are some concrete things that we can stake our faith on, that we can put our faith on, that can affect how we live everyday lives. In fact, if we can get the basic handle on this doctrine of who Jesus is, it will work like an anchor that we can hold on to, especially in the storms of life. Meaning we can tie our faith, our doctrine down to these anchor spots, especially when the storms come. And in turn, that will unlock much more of the rest of the Bible when we understand who Jesus is. So let's go back to verse 12. We're going to visit it a lot today. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now remember, this verse is an anchor point as you, we walk through this. Think of it as that anchor point. That he claims to be the light of the world. The light prophesied through the Old Testament. He is the promised one, the anointed one. The Old Testament 
is about him. We just saw that, didn't we, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah last week, verse uh, or chapter 42 of Isaiah. You could even read Isaiah 49. Both of those are about the coming of the Messiah, uh, the prophecy. And much of the Old Testament, and especially the book of Psalms, uh, point to the coming of the Messiah. They sing about that. In 8.12, I want us to notice that when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, that phrase is one of three things which God is said to be. Now look back, if you would, to John chapter 4. Turn over to John 4 just for a moment. As Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he says this about God. This is Jesus speaking. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in what? Spirit and truth. Now, what does Jesus say God is here? Spirit, right? Okay, look with me. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. That's near the back, right before the book of Revelation in that area. Little bitty book. Here it is. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because, read it with me, God is love. Okay, one more, one more, and then we'll, we'll take a note on this. Turn just a few pages from that to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have, all right, here it is. This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So what does it say God is? God is light, light. Now do you see this starting to tie in here? These expressions tell us Part of the nature of God. Here, here, write this down. Write this down. Three expressions that relate to the nature of God. God is spirit. God is love. God is light. Three expressions that relate to the nature of God. God is spirit. God is love. God is light. Now, are these three all that God is? No. Depending on how you ask it, though, you could say yes in a different way. We could say no, this is not all that God is in the sense that we could go on for eternity trying to describe God. That's what we were talking about. And never get to the bottom of describing him or his attributes. We would just never exhaust that, would we? And no, because God is infinite. On the other hand, we could say yes in this sense because there are statements of summing up of who God is, a summing up. I know this might sound strange if you've never heard this, but God is simple. He is not complex. And you might say, Paul, Paul, that's crazy talk. You just said we could describe him for all eternity and not get to the bottom. But you might say God is incredibly complex, but that would be an incorrect statement. Now, since Jesus is claiming to be God, God the Son, the third member of the Trinity, let me introduce you to a doctrine. This is an old school doctrine that can help us to understand who God is and therefore who Jesus is as God. You're going to have to put your thinking caps on, but here it is. It's called divine simplicity. God is not made up of parts. He is simple. All that is in God is God. Just write it down. We'll talk about it. Divine simplicity. This doctrine that says God is not made up of parts. He is simple. All that God is Uh, All that is in God is God. Now, what do we mean by that? At first, this sounds like a hard concept to understand, but really, it's not very hard at all once you think about it. God is not somehow made up of parts or components that you add up and then you get a God. God does not possess attributes in the sense that somehow you pull all these attributes off the floor And you assemble a God. Those attributes don't exist outside of God. Even though we could talk about God's attributes like his love, his mercy, his omnipotence, uh, meaning he's powerful or being 
His mercy, God does not possess attributes like if you took all those things and spread them out and then you put them together, then you get God. That's not God. Let me say it this way. There are no attributes that exist outside of God that you can put together and say, well, that's God. For instance, there's no thing such as love or mercy or justice that exist outside of God that you can assemble into a God. Now, without God, those attributes simply don't exist. Now, let me see if I can give you an analogy. If I took a ton of parts, just all kinds of parts, thousands of parts, spread them out all over the floor here, we carefully walked around, you could identify maybe some parts. I know some guys that are good mechanics around here, and they they can pick up, well, there's a spring, and there's a screw, and there's some hand grips, grips, uh, maybe what's this? You assemble all those things uh, into one thing. Someone that was really good knew what all those parts were. You could go, hey, there's a motorcycle. You got that? It's a complex thing. Lots of parts. However, God, he is not a putting together of parts, and the parts then make up God. Rather, he is God totally. Now I want you to understand this because it's very important. Although we can talk about things like mercy, about God's wrath or his love or his unchangingness, what we call his immutability, what we can't take is those apart and leave the others because all those things are God. Now why bring this up here when we're talking about John 8, 12? Because many Christians have developed a false doctrine that looks a lot like the false man-made gods of mythology. Meaning they think God is possessing human attributes like we have, but only in greater measure. You go, well, I love, so God's love must be like my love. Wrong. Or, or I've, I've had mercy before, so God's mercy must be like a little bit more than my mercy. Wrong. God's wrath, or whatever you think of. But that's a false doctrine that is not born out of careful study of God's word. It's why we depend so much on the revelation of Jew, who Jesus claims to be here in John. Because if we try to say, well, this is how I think I would run the world if I were God... And then we deduce, well, that must be like how God is. We can't honestly say that we believe that because we are not God. By definition, we are limited if we're not God. So anything that God possesses, like love or mercy or justice or foreknowledge, it's not a partial thing. It's a total and complete thing. Perfect love. Perfect mercy, perfect grace, perfect and complete justice, perfect and complete love. Now, if that were somehow true that God is like us, though, that would mean that God would be dependent on part. All right. Nope, I'm still good. The point is that if God were dependent on something else, that would mean he would have given up his deity to those parts that made him into God. Are you tracking with me? Is your brain on fire? I apologize, but this can help us understand what Jesus is claiming here. Watch this. He's not lacking anything. So in these three expressions of who Jesus is, he is spirit, love, and life, light. What we mean is that he is the perfect archetype spirit. He is the perfect representation of love. He is the perfect and complete light. Now, with that in mind, do you remember back in the first chapter of John when the apostle is describing Jesus to us? Do you remember that? Flip over to John 1. John 1, verse 4 and 5. Here it is. I put Jesus in wherever it's talking about Jesus because John the apostle is, is describing him. So he says, in him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light, Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is conveying back to us in that first chapter what Jesus teaches about himself. John was summing up. He's saying, this is what you're going to find in this book. Now, think about some of Jesus' attributes. 
I want you to understand this at the core of who you are. When we say this in John 8, 12, here we are again. And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you get what that when Jesus says, he says this, when Jesus declares, I am the light of the world, he is announcing his absolute deity. He is announcing his absolute deity. I say this because some of you have a picture of Jesus as like the lesser way, a lesser God to get to the real God who is the Father. That's wrong and incomplete doctrine. That's wrong, 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 wrong. Knowing what we know now, once again, let's look at John 8, 12. Here it is. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We have some foundational understanding of what Jesus is saying. So let's use this now to go deeper into this verse. Jesus says he is the light of the world. And what do we know that light does? It dispels darkness. It dispels darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. So light dispels darkness, but it also reveals what is really there that you can't see when light is not present. I mean, when darkness is there. Now, let's think about this second half of this verse for just a moment. When Jesus makes this statement, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What is Jesus communicating to us there? Well, let's start with the basics. I like basic. You know me. Jesus is making a differentiation between two groups of people, isn't he? Making sure that you understand this. Let's write this down. Here it is. There are two groups of people on earth. There are people who walk in the light. There are people who sit in darkness. You can say walk in darkness, but I'm going to make a point about sit in darkness. There are two groups of people on earth. There are people who walk in the light. According to Jesus here, there are people who sit in darkness. There are people who walk in the light, those that follow Jesus and live in the light of Jesus. The the word walk is this analogy of living, right? It's moving, it's freedom of following Jesus as you live life. You're following him, you're walking. You're becoming who you are designed to be. For Christians, as we follow Jesus, we say we, we, we walk with Jesus. Why do we walk? Well, we've been set free from the dungeon of our sin, right? Our captivity of our sin. We were sitting in the dungeon of our darkness in spiritual death, captive to our own sin in darkness. Without Christ, we are prisoners We can't get out. Uh, The the people sitting in the darkness, why are they sitting? Because they can't walk. They're in a cell. They're sitting there. You see the analogy? They are blinded by the darkness, and, and they don't even know that they're blind if they've never seen the light. Before we see the light of Jesus, you could say we are blind, couldn't you? But not just blind, we are prisoners. But prisoners of what? Sin. Jesus is the light, he says, who comes into our darkness. We see his light and we begin to follow him. The door to the prison opens up. We walk out. We walk out of the dark cell into the light that he brings. We no longer sit in darkness or once we've seen the light, we are no longer bound by sin. Someone say amen. Amen. Jesus is referred to that same idea here Back in chapter 3, when he said to, um, to enter the kingdom of heaven. You remember he's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus had asked. He said, how do I see the kingdom of heaven? And, and Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be regenerated. Literally, if you translate that line, you must be born from above, Jesus says, from heaven. Here's what we know. You must have seen the light. 
Before Jesus calls us, we live in darkness. We are prisoners of our own sin, locked in a dungeon. Get that picture. The Apostle Paul tells us the same thing using a slightly different analogy. This is what we read a lot, Ephesians 2. He has a different way of explaining it. Same, th- same idea, different analogy. He says, he's talking to Christians that are now saved. He's saying, you were dead in the trespasses of your sin. You were dead in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Do you see the analogy there? Before Christ calls us to life, we were dead in our sins. We weren't sick in our sins, were we? We weren't in that prison cell with just a little, you know, low watt, 30 watt light bulb. It was black, it was death, it was dark. By the way, why are we all in darkness before Christ comes? Why were we in the dungeon? Why were we dead? Whatever analogy, well, sin, yes, yes. But Paul tells us something more here. Before Christ sets us free, we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were obeying him. That would be the devil, the spirit that is now at work inside the sons of disobedience. Remember, he says there's two groups of people in the world. Now, you guys tracking with me? I'm throwing a lot at you, but back to John 8, 12. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I want us to realize what he's not saying. What he's not saying. What is Jesus not saying? Here it is. Jesus does not say, I am a light of the world. He says in John 8, 12 that he is the light of the world. Some of you are going, Paul, I don't get it. You're like Patrick. I don't get it. Any SpongeBob fans? I'm one. The word the is important because there isn't another light that can shine in the world. Like what we talked about a few moments ago, Jesus is not made up of light. He's not made up of light. Jesus is the light. He is the light of the world, right? The apostle Peter puts it the same way in Acts chapter 4 verse 12. Peter preaches here, he says, and there is salvation in no one else, talking about Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other light. There's no other way. Saved from what? Saved from sin and death, our own sin and death. Saved from our own evil hearts, our evil desires. No other name but Jesus. There is no other name that can save us. There is no other Savior. There is no other way. Jesus is the only way. Now, that goes directly against almost everything the world throws at you as truth. They will, in fact, say, well, that's hate speech if you say that. They will tell you that there are lots of other ways to believe and be saved. They will say, believe in yourself. Believe in the the you inside of you. Believe what you want to believe or believe nothing at all. Believe in any and every religion or no religion at all. They're all truth. Now that just can't be true. In short, they will say, always lead to heaven. All roads lead to heaven. But But does what Jesus says here in John 8, 12 bear that out? No. He says there are. There's some stuck in darkness, doesn't he? Once again, go back to John 8, 12. Here it is. I hope you have this fall, your Bible fall open to this verse. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, when Jesus declares, I am the light of the world, let's think about that another way. Does that mean that Christ Jesus is the light of the whole world. Don't answer. Does it mean he's the light of the whole world? Before you answer, let's think about it. Let's think about it. Does that mean Christ Jesus is the light of the whole world? I mean, the whole ball of wax, every person who ever lived, every man, woman, whoever lived that was created. In, in a way, yes. 
in the end at judgment. Do you remember when we studied John 5 back like six years ago? It just, it's not that long ago. It's like two years ago. All right. But do you remember when we studied John 5 and Jesus describes that final judgment? You remember that? He said this in verse 28, second half of verse 28, 29 of John 5. Jesus said, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. How many dead people will hear his voice? All of them. And come out. That's freaky. And, And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So in a way, in this way, yes, in the end, all will see Jesus and know him to be the son of God. But he will be the judge. The Apostle Paul talks about that judgment as well. He says this in Philippians chapter 2 verse 9. He says, therefore God has highly exalted him, talking about Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee, how many knees? Every knee should bow in heaven on, uh, and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, of the Father. So just again, let me test you. How many tongues confess? Every tongue. Every knee. So in that sense, everyone ever created will see Jesus in the end. But it's, and, and declare him Lord. But that does not mean that all are saved. Think about it. Does that mean that Christ Jesus is the light of the whole world? I mean, meaning that everyone will be set free from their sin? And the answer is no. No, no. Well, so certainly, now we saw those last two passages. Another way to say this question is to ask, is universalism a good doctrine for Christians to believe in? And the answer is no. But why, but why, 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 why is universalism a false doctrine? Well, false doctrine alert, here it is. Universalism, the doctrine that all humans will finally be saved in God's blissful presence. Look at this false doctrine, universalism, the doctrine that all humans will be finally be saved into God's blissful presence. You get this? This is important to understand Because for many Christians that are new to the faith, this sounds like a good doctrine. This false doctrine is easy one to fall into if you're not very mature in the Lord. And it should not surprise us that false belief draws some well-meaning Christians into it. But how do we know that universalism is a false doctrine? Other than the scripture that we just read. Well, as always, we test everything that claims that to be the truth by this, right? And another way to ask it is this, to ask, does a supposed truth measure up to what the Bible actually says? Not analogies, not stories, not even your own experience. Does it match up with this? Well, there's so many passages in scriptures that show universalism to be wrong. And one of them is right under our noses in John 8, 12. And clearly, what does John 8, 12 reveal about universalism? Here it is. It is only the one who follows Christ that has the light of life. The one who does not follow Christ remains in darkness. It is only the one who follows Christ that has the light of life. The one who does not follow Christ remains in darkness. This isn't in my plans for today, but let me ask. Don't answer because you may answer wrong and embarrass yourself. Does following Christ save you? No. No. We follow Christ because we have been brought to life. And listen, if we're not following Christ, are we saved? Probably not. I just, I know that might hurt. Some toes just got stepped on. A person who does not really believe can fake it for a while. And many even fool many true believers for a while. They can fool me too. Even fool the elders. But Eventually, they'll simply stop faking their walk of following Jesus 
and either get saved or they fall away. Now, please understand that no Christ followers should ever delight in seeing someone continue to walk in darkness. It's just painful to watch. Like you just hurt for them. It's the reason we desire to share the gospel with our friends and our family. And certainly we would never want anyone, even our worst enemies, to go to hell. That's an unthinkable thing to be separated from God for all eternity in torment. Flip flip, uh, over with me to John 12 for a moment. John 12 verse 46. Jesus says this, I have come into the world as a light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is consistent in his teaching. Back to the claim in 8.12 to be the light of the world. Or you could say the exclusive light of the world. No other lights but Jesus exist. If that is true, universalism is a false doctrine like scripture has revealed. Like Jesus has revealed. Is there more we can say about the meaning of Jesus being the light of the world? <laughs> Baby, we hadn't begun to scratch it. Here it is. Let's come, um, let's once more compare familiar ground that we've studied before. Listen to what John tells us in John 1. Flip back to John 1. Let's look at verse 4, 5, and then jump down to verse 9. Listen carefully to what the Apostle John says. He says, in him, talking about Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John here is summing up the birth of Jesus, him coming on, taking on flesh. The coming of Jesus into the world as God the Son. God takes on flesh and he becomes human. Now, what were, what were some of the things we learned back in John uh, chapter 1? Real life that God designed for us before mankind fell into sin, sin, we learned that darkness isn't a thing, didn't we? Rather, it is a lack of a thing, which is what? Light. We could say it this way, evil is is not a thing, it is less than a thing. It is an incomplete thing. We, we could say, what is less than truth? A lie. What is less than light? Darkness. Therefore, darkness, evil, Satan, can't stand up to the light. Do you see where I got that? And, and sorry to be so basic, it's me, baby, but we've got to get this. Who is the light of the world? Jesus. Who is the light of the world? One more time and then do it right this time. Who is the light of the world? That's what our message is. That's all truth, but here's what I want us to see. That's not all there is to this meaning here. Look back at John 1 again, verse 4, one more time. The apostle shows us there's something about Christ Jesus that is so very basic. It's easy to miss. So listen carefully. John 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. When God created mankind, we knew the light. Sin caused us to fall in darkness. The world fell into darkness when Adam sinned. But here's what we need to understand. Every rational creature is morally enlightened. Now hang with me. Write this down. At our core, every rational man has an understanding of what is right and wrong, good and evil. In other words, if their brain works, not someone has a brain injury that their brain's not working, or a little kid. That doesn't understand everything. They haven't reached the age of accountability. At our core, every rational man and woman has an understanding of what is right and wrong, good and evil. We're not somehow saying that all men are saved and they act on what's good or uh, evil. uh, Or even agree with what's right and wrong. But what we're saying is that every rational man and woman knows at the core what is right and wrong. You know that if I go and hit you over the head and steal your money, that's wrong. You don't have to be a Christian to understand that. You don't, you don't have to be a Christian to understand if I go and shoot someone and kill them that that would be 
wrong. Folks, it's one of the reasons I don't believe in the debunked uh, theory of evolution because all through time, all through the world, men have been consistent and have had the same basic moral foundation of what is right and wrong. That's just not changed. Not that all men have lived by them, but they all have that in their hearts. Scripture bears that out. And when right and wrong are broken in society enough that society after time fails itself, it's destroyed. Boy, I could take a break here and just preach about where we're at. You break God's moral laws long enough as a society, as a society, you cease to exist. But there's just story after story after story after story. We don't have time to go further on that, that trail of thought, but you, you get what I mean. And, and I will say our country is on that trail. Amen. It will not survive unless we turn to Jesus. Amen. Here's my point with all mankind having the same basic moral compass. As we talk about Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, we mean that the widest possible sense because we are all created beings, right? All morals come originally from Jesus being the creator. Maybe that's deep. We looked at this so much of what Jesus said about claiming to be the light of the world in John eight twelve. but something we haven't looked at yet is the word world. The Apostle John likes to use the word world here. Uh, Just for comparison, the other three Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, use that word world 15 times. All of them together. The Gospel of John uses that word 77 times. He likes the word. You don't have to search to understand why uh, long on this. So the other three gospels are great. We're not knocking them at all. They give a picture of how Jesus was special in his relationship to the Jewish people, how he is the Messiah. But the gospel of John does something very different, doesn't it? John presents Jesus as the Christ. It doesn't contradict the others. It just explores what the essential message is of who he is as the son of God, that third member of the Trinity, the son of God. Write this down. The Gospel of John reveals the deity of Christ as God himself and therefore creator of all. The Gospel of John reveals the deity of Christ as God himself and therefore creator of all. I had someone argue with me uh, on this in the past. They go, no, no, God, God the Father created. God the Father pulled the trigger, that's for sure. Jesus is God, God the Son, the second member of the the Godhead, or what we also call the Trinity. Look back again at chapter 1 of John. I'm going to show Jesus' name in the text here to remind us who it's talking about. But here it is, verse 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word, Jesus, was with God. So before anything existed, there was Jesus. God. So Jesus was God. We got that down? Here it is. He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. So as things were being created, Jesus was there. We know that. All things were made through him, Jesus. Woo! You go, it still doesn't say yet, Jesus created all things. Oh, yes, it does. And without him, Jesus, was not anything made that was made. Jesus created you. Is he God the Father? No. There's one God, three persons. God the Father willed it. Jesus brought it into existence. This should not in any way lessen role of God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. That doesn't lessen that at all. We're just exploring because of what John is saying. Now remember, there's one God represented three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each one God equal in power, exact, but different in relationship, how they relate to each other, living in this perfect love and harmony. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the great poet, um, poet, the great writer, said this. He says, they live in a perfect dance together, never a step 
that is made that is false. The point that we want to make here is that Jesus, as he claims to be the light of the world, he really is the light of the entire world in the sense that he created the world literally. He upholds the world by his power literally, not figuratively. B.B. and I have this thing when we're talking to someone and they say uh, something that was figurative uh, and they say, it's literally. And we go, nope. (laughs) So be careful when you use that or we'll just make fun of you behind your back. But uh, we do that mainly on TV. They'll go, he was literally the biggest man I've ever seen in the world. Here you go. But look, John 8, 12, let's look at it one more time. Here it is. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you follow Jesus? Do you believe? That always results in following Jesus, if you do. Not just believe that Jesus existed, even that he existed, and you think he might be the son of God, but that you've given your life so much that you go, oh, you're going that way, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to stay right with you. But what if you believe that Jesus is the son of God, come to redeem you and save you? Well, then you just pray this prayer. You, you pray a prayer. The prayer doesn't save you. You, 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 you pray and you say, God, uh, if you're real, I believe you. I want to give my life to you. Forgive my sins. I I repent of those. Would you forgive me of not believing you before now? And he will make you a child of God. Now, when you've seen the light, there's an old song. I saw the light. I saw the light. No more darkness. No more night. Hey, I don't wear boots and, and Wranglers for nothing. I, I'm legit. When you see the light, it will be a different you. If you see the light, that if that is what you believe, well, then follow him. Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let me say this. If I told you, that on the way here, that my car broke down and I got out and I was hit by a bus at 60 miles an hour. You go, man, that's really bad. You go, man, it really did hurt. But, but I'm here and I'm ready to preach. Would you believe me? Why? Because that's a life-changing event. A bus hits you standing there 50, 50, 60 miles an hour. A bus hits you. Some of you claim to know Jesus, but your life doesn't look like it. Because, here's the thing, when Jesus comes into your life, you will be different. You will... You will not, not that you, you don't ever sin again. I'm not saying that it's that you are different. You go, you lament your sin. You say, Hey, I, I want to turn from my sin. Here's the thing is, have you turned from your sin? Have you followed him? Have you, have you gotten in the baptism tub yet? And say, Paul, I want to show the world that I got hit by a bus and that bus is Jesus. And my life is different now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. God, I love my church. I do. But God, it it terrifies me that we would know about Jesus and and not give ourselves to him in faith. And trust and begin to walk with him. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters, my friends, that they would turn their life over to Jesus right now. God, I pray for Christians that are truly saved, but they don't act like it. God, I pray that you would wash us clean. That you would show us where we need to repent. God, I I pray for those that 
they in, in the room and those listening online that just say, I, I don't, I don't know. I just have these doubts, Paul. God, would you make yourself real to them? Would you make yourself real to them? Awaken them. Turn the light on in their present cell. As you just continue to pray, let me talk to you Christians for just a moment. Some of you have gone back inside the cell that you've been set free of and you've pulled the door closed and you sat down on your old bunk. And you said, I guess I'm not saved because I can't defeat this sin. Or I can't defeat that sin and I can't quit. Listen, listen to me. We are all wrestling with temptation and sin. We all do. But that doesn't mean that Jesus hasn't set you free. Look, look, just push against the door. It'll open. You have been set free. Follow Christ. Begin living like it. Quit treating church like a second-hand deal that you go when the Broncos aren't playing. Quit treating uh, uh, being in your Bible like it isn't the life-giving word of God that it is. Give up those sins that you don't even like those anyway. Pray this. Brothers and sisters, God, through your Holy Spirit, would you just convict my heart? Would you show me how to be holy and to follow you? And God, let me rest in your forgiveness of who you are. Rest in your your gift of Jesus and his blood that has paid for my sin. And end your prayer like this. God, Thank you for setting me free in your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.